Good morning. And here, uh, for those who are alive today, happy Easter weekend. Uh, for those who watch in two weeks, you're happy Easter weekend two weeks ago. And uh, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer today. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. And as the world reflects this weekend on your great sacrifice, we ask that your spirit will join us and let us have greater discernment and insight into what you've done to save us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing lesson number two in the quarterly, um, the book of Matthew, and the title is The Ministry Begins. And just before we get into the lesson, I got another email in the past week, and I wanted to share this email with you from one of our online uh, viewers. Dear Come and Reason Friends, you are one of the biggest blessings I have ever received. Your DVDs and lessons could not have come at a better time in my life. I have experienced in the past year many difficulties that if it wasn't for this wonderful view of God that I have discovered through this ministry, I would not have been able to respond in love and forgiveness. My heart is being transformed every day by the Calvary-looking God you preach. Hallelujah. I have tears in my eyes as I write. My life has taken a complete turn from where I was heading. My children were afraid and often confused by the rules that made no sense. They often asked me questions to which I had no answer. Questions where God would appear like a bipolar being. I've often felt afraid and frustrated for not being able to have a reasonable and intelligent answer to their concerns. My 15-year-old loved to listen to Dr. Jennings and even said he would like to preach someday. When I asked him what he would like to share, he said, God's wrath. He sees now that most everybody in the church has a misunderstanding of who God is. He has never preached, by the way. This is very encouraging to me, to hear my boy say he wants to speak on a topic that is so misunderstood and scary. I have shared your DVDs with friends and family. Thank you. One of the great blessings that came in the last box with the lessons you sent. I wasn't expecting them, but I quickly devoured them. The one on abuse so resonated with me. It helped me see that often we make God to be like an abuser when he is not, and why so many of our men and women are like that. The other lesson in the cosmic conflict over God's trustworthiness is blessing me and many more. Let me explain what I do. I am from Central America. Most of my family is scattered in different parts of the globe. They have the same view of God that I had growing up, a distant, exacting, and ready to punish us with tragedy type of God. We communicate through a family chat, and often one of my brothers sends devotionals from Ellen White that have been arranged in a way that leaves one more afraid of God. None of you have ever experienced that, I'm sure. Some of the group responded with comments that are fear-based and some just don't. I thought I had to do something because it saddened me to see my family surrounded in this darkness. I'm still learning and and know I will continue to learn about God's beautiful character throughout eternity, but I decided to share what I have been learning through the Cosmic Conflict lesson. I have been translating each individual lesson and voice recording them for my family. To my surprise, they have also been taking the recordings I send and sharing them with others. I prayed that God would open their understanding to this message and seal it in their heart. I can already see the difference in the devotionals my brother sends. They are taking an amazing turn from a message of repent or burn toward a loving God pleading to us that we won't reject him because he loves us eternally. On our conversations on phone, he has often said, thank you for sharing. I have never heard it this way. I still have much work to do and pray as I come to know my Savior better each day that I can speak to others. Bless you for all you do. I will continue to support this ministry as I am able. I want to give your DVDs to my church members, and I'm requesting, if possible, 100 of each. 
So anyway, isn't this nice? This is the type of stuff that's happening all over the world. We get these emails and letters in um, because of this message about God that's actually changing lives. So our lesson, the ministry begins. Uh, the second paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says, I didn't understand what the meaning of life was, said a 17-year-old boy from a well-to-do family who became a prescription drug addict. I still don't, but I thought that everyone else did, that there was this big secret that everyone was in on and I wasn't. I thought everyone understood why we were here and that they were all secretly happy somewhere without me. And so I thought, well, that's a, that's an interesting idea. Maybe we should explore that, this question of the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? And is there some secret that we are supposed to know? And if so, what is the secret? Have you thought about that? This view that everyone had a secret and he wasn't in on it. Romans sixteen twenty five to 27 Paul writes, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. The only wise God be glory forever through Christ. Amen. There's some mystery that's been hidden through ages past. What's the mystery and why has it been hidden? Any thoughts? Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached for fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. What's the mystery described here? He's alluding to it. He's getting to it. He's, he's describing something happening. What's being described? I always think of the mystery of iniquity, and now it maybe includes the remedy. The mystery of iniquity. Is that the mystery that's been hidden from long ages past? When God, the Godhead, decided to start creating beings, they had to make a plan, if we're going to give them free will, that someday they might use this free will against us. And if they do, the only way that we're going to be able to explain our love and show them that we love them is that it's going to cost the life of our sons. So they had to make a decision that was going to impact all free will creatures, that that's going to cost our son. And they decided to go ahead and move forward with that plan, even though it was going to cost them a great price. I like where you're going with that. I like where you're going with that. And unpack this idea. How is this a mystery? Why is this a mystery? You know, this text said, uh, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. So something about, and what, what is that describing? It's, it's describing unity at one mint. Something about that idea of unity at one mint has been, had been a mystery. Had been a mystery. I think it's connected to what's being said over here. In Ephesians 3, 2 through 11, it says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, that it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the work of his, of his power. 
Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be, revealed, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. What is this mystery? Yes. Would it be the incarnation? Ah, so we're actually trying to put more nuts and bolts on this. The incarnation of Christ is a mystery, isn't it? Yeah, and the incarnation of Christ, not just the fact it happened, but it achieved something that was mysterious. Uniting heaven and earth. Uniting heaven and earth. Yes. God with, with man, with humans. Yes, we heard that, and all things in heaven and earth reconciled as part of the mystery. Gentiles, though, being brought in, part of the mystery, the incarnation of Christ. Another place, breaking down the dividing wall, making one out of the two, talks about. This is good. How about um, Colossians 1, 25-27? I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to, pre- to present to you the word of God in its fulfillment, the mystery that has been kept, kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. So the mystery that had been hidden now is being disclosed. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious, uh, glorious riches of this mystery which is, oh, this is going to be key, right? This mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What, what do you hear the mystery is? Christ in you. Christ in you. And, and why is that a mystery? We're so fallen and sinful and corrupt that a being, God, could care enough about us to create a remedy, to change the way we really are and make us whole again. I agree with that completely. I'm still going, but what made it mysterious? Or let me put it this way. What was hiding it? Remember, it keeps saying that was hidden from ages past. Hidden from ages past. Why was it hidden? What was hiding it? What was keeping it from being understood and seen? A veil of darkness. A veil of darkness. The whole world is in darkness. This is a... um, Colossians 2, 2, and 3. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete under, full riches of complete understanding. Wow, that's a rich thing, isn't it? Complete understanding, yes. Uh, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So now it was the mystery of Christ in you. Now it's the mystery of God, namely Christ, which was said earlier, the incarnation is a mystery. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily. This is a mystery, which are hidden all the treasures and wisdom. Even going back to before creation, um, Christ being taken the form of an angel was a mystery to angels. I mean, that, that was what the original controversy is about. Lucifer alleged equality with Michael, so... God had to reveal part of the mystery to the angels. Yeah, and that mystery wasn't fully revealed, though. Correct. And is it simply the mystery that God can present himself in the form, any form he wants? Is that the mystery? God can appear as an angel. God can appear as a man. Is that, is that the mystery? Wow, I didn't know God could do that. That's pretty, that's, that's like a magic trick. Is that, is that the mystery? No. No, what's the mystery? He not only appeared as a man, but he became 
What is it that that reveals that's so amazing? His humility. Oh, I like where you go. And whose humility, though? Think about it. God's humility. Yes. Yeah, God who is creator of reality and sustainer of reality would divest himself of all that power and become nothing more at that time in history, power-wise, than a man and surrender all the way to death. That is mysterious. Really? And this aspect of God's character had been hidden because God was hiding because God was somehow putting up, you know, misinformation billboards. But because allegations had been made and made it difficult. Yeah. This is out of uh, Christian Education, page 77. When we seek for appropriate language in which to describe the love of God, we find words too tame, too weak, too far beneath the theme, and we lay down our pen and say, no, it cannot be described. We can only do as did the beloved disciple and say, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called sons of God. In attempting any description of this love, we feel as if we are infants lisping our first words. Silently we, we may adore, for silence in this matter is the only eloquence. This love is past all language to describe. It is the mystery of God in the, in the flesh, God in Christ, the divinity in humanity. Christ bowed down in unparalleled humility that is that in his exaltation to the throne of God he might also exalt those who believe in him to seat with him upon his throne. What is the mystery here now? I think this puts all those passages together that we read. It's kind of distilling it down to what this mystery is. And what do you hear the mystery is? It's ultimately the love of God. The mystery is the character of God fully revealed in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's the mystery hidden. God's character of love. Do you see? It all ties back. Always comes back to the same theme. And then Signs of the Times, March 25, 1897. What is this mystery of which Paul writes to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, which has been hidden from ages and from generations? Many have endeavored to define the mystery which Paul here mentions, but it embraces much in our ideas in regard to to the love, the goodness, and the compassion of God are strangely limited. Our ideas of God's true character are limited. Because our knowledge of spiritual things has become so dwarfed and enfeebled, we have not advanced from light to greater light. The Lord has not been able to open to our understanding many precious things in view of the losses which we have sustained by our earthliness and commonness. Pause. What do you think earthliness and commonness means? What is it that obstructs seeing the true nature and character of God. You know, you know my bias in here, what has been really the cutting issue for me for, for a couple of years now. If, some, if, if two people get together and they live together as husband and wife, but not after actually going through a ceremony, what is it called? Common, common law. Uh, the commonness of earth. Is it this earthliness and commonness? Is it this way the, the earth does business? The, the nations of the earth, the beastly systems of the world, how do they do business? By implementation of imposed law and coercive power. 
And when we think through that lens, we can't comprehend the creator God who has built everything to operate in harmony with his nature. It's obstructed to us. We can't see it. It's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. And, and if, you, if you doubt me on this, go to some of these people still stuck in that legal model and talk about the beauty of God's character of love and how he's assigned things and how that God doesn't have to punish sin because sin brings its own wage. The wage is death. He doesn't have to inflict. And they're going to go, you don't make any sense at all. They can't comprehend it. It makes no sense to them. I want to read you one more. Signs of the Times, March 25, 1897. The incarnation of Christ is a mystery. The union of divinity with humanity is a mystery indeed, hidden with God, even a mystery which has been hidden from the ages. It was kept in eternal silence by Jehovah and was first revealed in Eden by the prophecy that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head and that he should bruise his heel. To present to the world this mystery that God kept in silence for eternal ages before the world was created, before man was created, was the part that Christ was to act in the work he entered upon when he came to this earth. And this wonderful mystery, the incarnation of Christ and the atonement he made, must be declared to every son and daughter of Adam, whether Jew or Gentile. His suffering perfectly fulfilled the claims of the law of God. None of the apostles could have filled the deficiency. Had there been any. So, what do you think this means, this last statement? His sufferings perfectly fulfilled the claims of the law of God. This is a, you will hear this. This, this. this type of statement, those people who hold to a different view than us would not have a, a problem preaching that. But they would give it a certain meaning. They would interpret it through a certain paradigm. Yes? God's way is to sacrifice, and that's not the world's way. That's exactly right. God's way is to self-sacrificial love, and the world's way is survival of the fittest, sacrifice others to protect self. Exactly opposite. So the, his sufferings perfectly fulfilled the claims of the law. What does it mean? Hopefully you, you, you drop back. If you get, get statements like this that on the surface are hard to understand, drop back and go, what law lens am I looking through? Also, are they talking about physical suffering, emotional suffering, mental suffering, spiritual suffering? Yes. I mean, you have to ask those questions. Yes. Well, the Bible talks about Christ having developed a character. And you, th- you see the most through his suffering, that despite the fact that he was being crucified, he was busily you know, arranging for other people, and he wasn't striking the people dead that were hurting him. And so through all of his suffering and rejection and so on, he showed that no amount of suffering or infliction could change who he was. So what does the law of God claim? His sufferings perfectly fulfilled the claims of the law. What does the law of God claim? Okay, I like where you're going with that. Remember, there's two law lenses. Let's, 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 let's think. If you have the imposed law lens, the human law, laws like we make, what do our laws claim? Justice, obedience, conformity, Right? Is that what they claim? Yeah. What is the law of God, though? Design law. Law claim. What does it claim? Freedom. Oh, it does claim freedom. Yeah, I like that. Any other thoughts? Working outside of that law represents uh, wages of sin is death. Okay. So if outside that law claims is death, then what does harmony with the law claim? Thank you. This is what the law of God claims. The law of God claims there is no other way for life to exist in this universe. That's its claim. This is how life is built. 
It claims harmony with it is the basis of life. That's its claim. Did the sufferings of Christ prove that? What's it say in 2 Timothy? That by his death he destroyed what? What did he destroy in 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10? By his death he destroyed death. Now think that through. How do you destroy death? What do you need to destroy death with? Life. So by his death, he destroys death and brought life and immortality to light, the scripture says. How did he do that? Because in his sufferings, what was revealed? Variance from God's law of love or perfect harmony with God's law of love? Perfect harmony. Thus his sufferings, the claims of God's law are met. It's that through God's perfect law of love manifested in the life of Christ, death was destroyed and life was restored into the species human. The claims were met. God, This is God's way of life, and it works. And thus Christ, I think, could accurately predict his resurrection because he understood the law of God. In the same way, if I let go of this, how many of you can predict will happen? How many feel they confident you can predict what will happen if I let go of this? Do you have the gift of prophecy? <laughs> How can you possibly predict a future event? Because you understand the law of gravity. He understood the law of God was the law of life, and he understood if it's successful in his mission, the inevitable outcome of restoring the law of love back into the, his hu- human species that he lived out perfectly would result in life. He would rise. He wouldn't be kept in the grave. Is love more powerful than selfishness? Yes. That's one of the claims of God's law. That's one of his claims. Love is more powerful. Life is more powerful than that. Love is more powerful. And then bottom of uh, Wednesday's lesson, in this idea of love being more powerful in, in, in ministering to others in this world of selfishness, says, how can we avoid the temptation to deem people as unworthy of our efforts to minister and witness to them? How can we avoid the temptation? And I thought, particularly in today's age, what happened in Brussels this week, how can we avoid the temptation to deem people unworthy of our efforts to minister to them, like the ISIS and the, and the radical uh, Islam? And then I asked that question particularly, is love more powerful? This is um, <clears throat> Christian, um, Christian de Serget, was a French Catholic monk and a Trappist prior, of a uh, monastery in Algeria. And with the rise of radical Islam in 1993, uh, Father Serge knew that his life was in danger. But instead of leaving Algeria, he chose to stay and continue his witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on May 24, 1996, Father Serge was beheaded by uh, Muslim radicals. Anticipating his death, he had left a testament with his family to be read upon his murder. And I want to read to you a portion of that testament. If it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism which now seems ready to encompass all foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept that the one master of all was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I ask them to pray for me, for how could I be found worthy of such an offering? I ask them to be able to associate such a death with the many other deaths that were just as violent but forgotten through indifference and anonymity. My life has no more value than any other, nor any less value. In any case, it 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 has not the innocence of childhood. 
I have lived long enough to know that I shared in the evil which seems, alas, to prevail in the world, even in that which would strike me blindly. I should like, when the time comes, to have a clear space which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and all my fellow human beings and at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who would strike me down. Obviously, my death will justify the opinion of all those who dismissed me as naive and idealistic. Let him tell us what he thinks now. But such people should know that my death will satisfy my most burning curiosity. At last I will be able, if God pleases, to see the children of Islam as he sees them, illuminated with the glory of Christ, sharing in the gift of God's passion and of the Spirit, whose secret joy will always be to bring forth our common human, our common humanity amidst our differences. I thank God, I give thanks to God for this life, completely mine, yet completely theirs too, to God who wanted it for joy against and in spite of all odds. In this thank you, in this thank you, which says everything about my life, I include you, my friends, past and present, and those friends who will be here at the side of my mother and father, my sisters and brothers, thank you a thousandfold. And to you too, my friend of the last moment, who will not know what you are doing. Yes, for you, too, I wish to thank you. This adieu, whose image is in you, that we may meet in heaven like happy thieves, if it pleases God, our common Father. Amen. Is this love a mystery? You see this love right here? This is mysterious to the world. This is not common knowledge for the world. The world can't figure this out. It makes no sense. What the world wants, and you see it on the news when they, when they, when they bring it up over and over again about Christians being beheaded over there, what the world wants is war. What the world wants is to go kill. The world doesn't want to forgive. The world wants to punish. The world wants to torture. You hear one of the presidential candidates talking about more torture. disguised as justice yes so what was hidden the truth about god his characters and, and method of love has been hidden from ages past has been hidden behind a wall of lies and false teachings originating with satan in heaven and it was christ who revealed the truth about god ultimately and, and his character and plan of salvation which is an actual change in your state of being the, the, the metaphors of Scripture, being reborn, having a new heart and right spirit, having circumstances of the heart, having the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in, having the law written on the heart and mind, having the mind of Christ, dying to the old, rising to the new. All this is, is trying to tell you that salvation is an actual change in your state of being. It is not legal adjustments happening in some, some courtroom in a far-off universe. The imposed law construct, the penal theory is part of the wall of lies that obstructs the mystery of God, keeps us in the darkness and not understanding God's true character of love. This week I was listening to Christian radio, and it was about Easter, and somebody called in to ask two guest theologians on the program uh, the meaning of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the sacrificing of animals. In the, I'm going to read to you just a brief portion of their response. The first, th- the first theologian responded, the reason in Leviticus 17 for... And he paused. That there has to be for that there has to be punishment with death for sin. And so in Leviticus 17, when the animal sacrifice 
sacrificial system is being established, it says, any Israelite or alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from, from the people. For the life of the creatures in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. See, blood represents life, and there has to be the punishment of death for sin. So therefore, any animal had to take the punishment and give its life, its blood, so that the offerer could live. That was the substitution. What my former professor here at Moody would call the exchange of life. Louis Goldberg called it that, the exchange of life. The animal dies, the person lives, and so that's the reason for the Old Testament sacrifice of atonement. Second theologian. A couple of things in the New Testament. In Luke's Gospel, it talks about how on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus uh, was having his Passover meal, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. That is, it's the death of Jesus that comes about because of his blood loss, among other things, his blood loss as well as the thing, as well is the thing whereby he was our atoning sacrifice. His death is required for us as well as uh, in, in order to save us. Paul talks about in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so it's very much the same principle. In the Old Testament, the death of the animal was required to take away the human sin problem. And now we have not the death of an animal, but the very Son of God who dies for us. And so his loss of blood is the thing whereby he succumbed in our behalf. We use the illustration of a credit card. The bill comes at the end of the month and you can't pay, you can't afford to pay it. So what do you do? You pay the minimum. And the next month you've got more credit on it and you have the last bill accruing and more interest and you pay the minimum. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were like. They were paying the minimum. But when Jesus came, he paid the interest and the principal and took it all away. That's what the atonement was like. And the host said, and all future bills. And the second theologian, yes, all future bills were paid too. As well. <laughs> I was going to add that. <laughs> what do you think of this description? Is this enlightening or is this darkening? Do you hear the layers of falsehoods, distortions and darkness here? And I was, it was breaking my heart realizing millions of people are listening to this and just having darkness upon darkness steep their minds against the truth. So let's first identify the multiple lies or falsehoods in this theory. First, sin requires punishment. And we're going to just do the lies, and I'm going to give you the evidence proving that these are lies. Second, or just list them, animal blood can atone for sin. The death of an animal was required to deal with sin. The physical, physical blood of Jesus is what atones for sin. Our sins are like legal debts that accrue and need to be paid. The physical blood of Jesus pays for those debts. Now let's look at some of the evidence. Sin requires punishment. Romans 5, 12-14 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in the same way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not commit sin by breaking a command, as Adam did. Do you hear what that's saying? No? This isn't okay. Sin is a state of being 
Not a, not a situation of behavior. In other words, sin was in the world because Adam changed the condition of humankind and all humankind are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. You're born with a terminal condition of being. It's not a legal process because before Sinai, there was no law, so you couldn't even have a record of sin. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, these people who weren't breaking a specific command were still dying, even though they didn't break a command or, 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 or break a rule. Why? Because they had a condition with which they were born that is out of harmony with how God has constructed reality to work. It's a terminal state. Oswald Chambers, if you remember, put it this way. Sin is something I'm born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it. Condemnation comes when I realize that Jesus Christ came to deliver me from this heredity of sin, and yet I refuse to let him do so. From that moment, I begin to get the seal of damnation. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Remember the analogy, HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman, get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. And if the baby grows up and never has the illicit sexual relations, never use IV drugs to get infected, never does any, do they, even though they don't do any wrong act, do they still have a condition which, if not remedied, will kill them? That's every human being. And that's what he's saying in Romans chapter 5, is that even though these people didn't break a specific command and infect themselves with rebelliousness, they were born already infected. Their hearts were already self-centered. This, their condition was already terminal. Thus, we need a remedy to the condition. So sin doesn't require punishment. Sin requires remedy, healing. That's what it requires. Or here's the desire of ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. This is Satan's argument. The idea that sin needs to be punished is Satan's idea. And those who promote it are promoting Satan's view of God's law and obstruct the mystery of godliness that we're trying to understand. We can't see the mystery because we're operating that God functions no different than humans do. How about the next two lies? Animal blood can atone for sin and the death of an animal was required to deal with sin. Everybody already know that's not true. A lot of people in, in evangelical Christianity don't know that though. Many of them think prior to Christ that they were actually had to shed the blood of an animal or you couldn't get forgiveness of sin. That was the, that was the method. That was what you had to do. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. And I'll just read um, actually verse 3. But those sacrifices, talking about the animal sacrifices, are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's like, it's like, these are theologians and they can't even read the scripture where it says it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sin. But they're saying that the sin problem was dealt with by the blood of animals. It's like, if it were possible, then Christ wouldn't have had to die. No, thank, thank you. Exactly right. But how can they get there? Because they're operating under an imposed law contract construct. And that if you break a rule, somebody has to be punished. And so the animal's being punished in your place. And rather than understanding that it's a little theater, just acting out a greater reality. How about the physical blood of Jesus is what atones for sin, or our sins are like legal debts that accrue and need to be paid, and the blood of Jesus is what pays the debt. 
Well, you remember Jesus said in John six fifty three through 56, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh and uh, drink my blood, you have no part with me. Was he talking cannibalism? Was he talking red corpuscles? It was not the physical blood that is what we need for salvation. Do you know if they were to find today, what would happen, do you think, in the world if they were actually to find the actual shroud of Christ that has remnants of his real physical human blood on it? What would happen today if they'd actually found that and could prove it was really his? And a bunch of shrines that would pieces of it. Oh, man, yes. Would he, would he would go crazy for this. They would, they would treat it like magic substance. Is there something magical about the red corpuscles that circulated in Jesus' body? No. No. Not at all. Yes, he bled. His physical body bled. But when Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that's metaphor. What's the reality to which it points? The flesh was translated over into another metaphor, bread and wine. Okay, That's still metaphor. Taking a particular piece of bread that the elders prayed over uh, without any leaven in it, without any yeast in it, at a particular ceremony is not what Jesus is talking about. The nutritional quality of that bread is no different. It doesn't do anything magic for you. It is a symbol. What's it symbolize? What's the reality to which it points? His life and his death. The bread... Remember, he is the, John chapter 1, and the word became flesh. The bread is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is the truth that destroys lies and wins us to trust. This is the bread, the bread of heaven that has come down. The truth about God revealed in Christ. And when that truth destroys lies, wins to trust. When we win to trust, we're open our heart, and the Spirit is poured in and takes the life of Christ we become partakers of the divine nature. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the blood. The life is in the blood. We get the actual life of Christ reproduced in us. That's the blood. We get new character, new motives, new, new, new desires, new wisdom. That's the blood. So the reality is a genuine transformation in the character of the individual, not some legal accounting of debts accruing in books. Sunday's title, John the Baptist and Present Truth. And I thought that title was quite interesting. I want to talk to you about this idea of present truth. Present truth. What is present truth? What is present truth? The truth that is appropriate for the time we're in. Excellent. The truth that is appropriate for the time in human history. And so let's go through, I thought we'd do a little bit of an overview of human history and ask some questions. And I'm going to ask you the question, what was the present truth for that time? And then what is the more complete truth? Because truth is advancing. Truth is unfolding. What is the more complete truth of that truth for that time for us today? So first, Adam and Eve after their fall. What is the present truth for Adam and Eve after their fall? You can read it in Genesis 3. What's the present truth? Salvation how can be achieved. Any thoughts? Salvation how can be achieved? Specifically, they were told that a remedy was going to be made for this mistake. So the present truth was the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and will bruise her. A savior is promised. That was the present truth for Adam. A savior was promised. What what is the more complete truth that we have today that builds on the truth that they were told in Genesis three? How would we say that today? But we understand it's more complete because we understand Jesus became incarnate. We understand the life, the whole history of what he revealed, what he accomplished at the cross. So Jesus came, defeated Satan in personal battle, 
and saved the species, perfected humanity in his person. And now it's a matter of individual participation in what he's achieved. So it's a more complete truth than what they had. Everybody see that? All right, how about this one? What was the, the truth for Noah's day? The present truth for Noah's day? Get on the boat. That's it. <laughs> that is the present truth for Noah's day. Okay? A way of salvation is prepared for all who will choose it. That's it. There's a, there's a way of salvation, a way of escape prepared for all who would choose it. What is the more complete truth from that truth for us today? That we are not choosing simply temporal salvation that they were choosing. There is a way of salvation for eternal salvation that we have the opportunity to choose. It's a more complete truth. How about what was the truth for Moses' day? Time to leave Egypt. I love this. Okay. So, okay. God will deliver from slavery, slavery and lead to a promised land. This was the, this was the message of truth. God will deliver the people and lead them to a promised land. What is the more complete truth for us today? It's a great truth. Jesus is coming back. That, that as Moses went into Egypt and confronted the ruler that enslaved the people, defeated that ruler and set the people. Jesus came to earth and confronted the prince of this world, defeated the prince of this world, took captives free, remember? He set the captives free, took a a handful back with him to heaven, the resurrection, okay? And is leading the rest who who will be willing, the mixed multitude, into the heavenly promised land. It's just a more un- unfolding truth. It's really cool if you look at it. A lot more we could say about that. What was the truth for David's day? Maybe I should say, what is the truth for David? <laughs> that God will deliver you from the roaring lion? We'll come to Daniel in a moment. <laughs> okay. From the roaring lion and... From the oppressive government <laughs> and from the worldly enemies, David was to be delivered from all these and set up his kingdom. Well, and someone over here said, and from himself. And from himself. Yeah, I like that too. And the more perfect truth for us today is that he delivers us from the roaring lion to seeking who may devour, delivers us from ourselves, delivers us from the governments the enemies in the world and sets up his eternal kingdom. Yeah. All right. How about Daniel's day? What was the truth, the present truth for Daniel and his friends? God will be with you even in the most extreme circumstance. Yes. Before that fall design law, the design laws of hell. That's a good one too. But God will be with you in the face of oppression and even captivity, if you will. God doesn't abandon you. God stays with you um, and has a plan to deliver and save you. And what's the more complete truth for us today? And has a plan to save and deliver your enemies. Yeah, I like that too. And if, and if you work with him, he, he can turn some of the enemies back into friends. Look at Nebuchadnezzar, who was won over. Darius, who was won over. Yeah. 
What was the truth for Nehemiah's day? What was the present truth for Nehemiah and the cohort there? Leave the world behind, build the temple of God, and prepare to meet the Messiah. Wasn't that the the message for Nehemiah's day? What is the the more perfect and complete truth for us today? From that truth, are we to leave the world's the world's view of religion behind? The infection of the imperial law construct of God's government. Leave that behind. In Revelation, oddly named Babylon. Yes, oddly named Babylon. I love that. Establish our spirit temples, right? On the truth about God and his character and methods, preparing to meet Messiah. We have to, we're building our spirit temple, aren't we? Yeah. And we are living stones (laughs) built together in a house for the Lord. So we are to leave behind this worldly view of God and be built together in a house for the Lord preparing to meet Messiah. Do you see the parallel? This is cool. What was the truth for John the Baptist's day? Okay, so we would say turn away from the kingdoms of the world and turn toward God's kingdom of love. He was supposed to make straight the path of the Lord. And in that way, for us, Though John the Baptist wasn't the Messiah, he was to turn people's interest toward the Messiah. Oh, yes, and, and, and so I love that, too. So he had a particular me- a message for him, which was make straight the way, and make the path for the Lord to come. In other words, he was to knock down what? What was he to knock down? Misconceptions about the kind of kingdom that was coming. Misconceptions about how God's government works. It was a message to prepare the people to receive the kingdom of God as at hand, the, the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of love. Do we have a work to do today? Remember the, before, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the, the prophet Elijah will come again? And remember we talked about the, the Elijah message and what that Elijah message is? Remember Baal, who Baal was in Old Testament times? He was, Baal was the son of El, as in Elohim, El Shaddai who was the God of creation, who brought the weather and brought to the crops each year, who fought against the great Leviathan, the great serpent, who fought against the God of death, Moat, and in his battle with, with Moat, he dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. This was the Baal that they were worshiping. Baal, so what's wrong with worshiping the God who's the son of the Father God, who is the creator God, who fights against um, the great serpent on our behalf, who fights against death and dies on our behalf and rises again to bring us life? What's wrong with worshiping him? This was Baal the Mesopotamian God, that Elijah was opposing. Because Baal required appeasement and payment. That's why. And Baal became, if you look at history, the God of thunder, the God of weather, the God of thunder, became Zeus to the Greeks, became Jupiter to the Romans, became Thor to the Norse people, and became Jesus Christ to Christians who worship a God today who must be paid and appeased. This God that we, we read about in the radio article, that's Baal. That's Baal worship. And thus the message, John, the message for us, make way for the Lord. Give the true message, knock down these lies, bring people back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the creator God, and prepare to meet the kingdom of God and, and the king of the kingdom of God. I also see the parallels of him confronting the, the current church leadership uh, with this message as well. Yes. Present truth in his time and our time as well. Yeah, and it's interesting that Herod married his brother's wife in an adulterous relationship, and the churches are described as, you know, the great harlot, okay? I mean, there, there's parallels, lots of, lots of lessons in this. What was the truth for Paul's day? 
What was the truth of Paul's day? For just Paul himself, God will do anything to get your attention. Okay, and the message, though, that Paul took, he told it the power of God. What was the power of God that he took forward to the world? He called it the gospel, which is the good news. But what the good news? What is the good news? What's the typical evangelical idea of good news viewed through the imperial-imposed human law lens? See, the bad news is that we are condemned on death row, and God justice requires that God kill us or torture us for all eternity if you don't believe in, in immortality of the soul. Either way, justice requires God do that to you. Thus, the good news is that Jesus paid that penalty and assuages the wrath of the Father and pays our debt, and therefore we can have eternal life in heaven because Jesus paid our debt. That credit card metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Now, let me ask you, is it good news that you could live eternally with God if God is the kind of being who will torture your brother and sister for all eternity? No, heaven would be... No, this is not good news. The good news of Paul is not that you have been uh, uh, some blood payment being made to a wrathful God to hold his anger in check. That is not the good news of the gospel. The good news is God is not like that at all, that God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, that you've seen Christ, seen the, seen the Father, that God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his Son, but gave him up, how we not with him, give us all things. God is on our side. This is the good news, and he's just like Jesus. Am I talking too fast? <laughs> I get excited about this. <laughs> But this is the good news. And what's the more complete truth for us today? The more complete truth for us today is the full integration that Paul tried to, in his day, of God's character revealed in special revelation, the Bible, harmonized with God's character revealed in general revelation, nature, and harmonized with your own personal experience with God, the integrative evidence-based approach of personal experience with God that, that you are so settled into the reality of who God is that nothing can shake you out of it. You are sealed. But Saul slash Paul in his own life demonstrates that before that he was going to terrorize everybody into believing or getting rid of them if they didn't. And after his intervention by God, he then said, I leave, we tell people the truth, but we leave them free to decide. There's a whole different mode of operation after he really learned what, what God was about, what Christ was like. This is exactly right. And that is an example of the change of character that we are supposed to have. Remember Revelation chapter twelve eleven, describing those who are part of this group we're talking about here, the, the more perfect truth for the end. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not interested in protecting self. They become selfless like Paul. I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. Something changed in him. Yeah, that character change. Okay, so what is the what was the truth for Luther's day? What was the truth for Martin Luther's day? Can't purchase salvation. Okay, can't purchase salvation. Very specific, but that's right. I was going a little more, more general. Christianity is infected with a bunch of lies, and it needs purification. It needs reformation. I mean, but there's lots of examples, and that's a great example. Yeah, you can't purchase salvation. Salvation is free. You can't work for it. But the, the bigger truth, I think, was that the church is corrupt with a lot of distortions about God. That was the big truth, and we need to reform that church. What is the more c- complete truth today? That the root of that infection that started the Reformation has not been fully identified or removed, and the root of the infection was the change in God's law, that God's law is not design law. It's a system of rules imposed and functions no different than our own as evidenced by the change of the day of worship. But the change of the day of worship was merely a 
symptom of the change in law. Because you can go back to the right day of worship and still worship a God who has a law that functions no different than we make, a system of rules that requires coercive enforcement and infliction of punishment. This is what the Jews who worship Christ did. They worshiped this distorted view of God's law, and thus they crucified him who made the Sabbath. Got him off the cross so they could keep the day. This is the bigger change. And this infection is still infecting every Christian denomination of the world, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this is our call to come back to worship the designer, worship him who made the heavens and the earth, come back to, to, and throw this imperialistic construct off, and then it changes everything. And then what was the truth for Ellen White's day? The loud cry to the world. The loud cry to the world about what? That you're worshiping on the wrong day, and if you don't change days, you're going to get a mark of the beast? Is that the loud cry? All her famous controversy books starts with God is love and ends with God is love. Nice. Exactly. The five book Conflict of the Ages series, the first three words in Patriarchs and Prophets, and the last three words at the end of Great Controversy, is God is love. Everything in between is simply a description of God's dealing with human, the sin problem, through history demonstrating the consistent actions of love in various places, times, and settings. But God always comes through as God is love. That is absolutely right, yes. One of the interesting things about her time was that um, they emphasized prophecy. I mean, the whole Millerite movement and that whole spiritual revival that took place in the the mid-1800s was about prophecy and about, you know, a revival of the churches. And one of the big criticisms of the Adventists, not the Seventh-day Adventists, but Adventists, um, you know, focusing on the second coming of Christ, was that all they want to talk about is prophecy. Why don't we just talk about the love of God? And so the, the, the truth for Ellen White's day was the truth about God's character of love. Here's the big one. In the setting of the great controversy. That's the big one. And that's a new key that is, is a continuation of the Reformation started by Luther and his cohorts back in the what, 16th, 15th, 16th century. And, uh, and it's a continuation of moving forward and advancing truth that it's not just about saving or there's a whole universe involved in this conflict as the scriptures do teach and then a more complete truth for us today that the law god's law is the law of love and the sabbath is a sign of a grander creation law a law that is constructed to operate in certain ways and the truth for us today that god is waiting for a people to be so settled into the truth about him both intellectually and spiritually has methods and principles that you cannot be shaken from it And when that people is sealed, then a great loosening of the four winds happen and troubles begin to happen on earth, which shake the rest of the sleepy world out of their complacency. And they ask what's going on. And the witness of those who have already been settled into the truth uh, is given about God. They give their testimony about who God is. And a great multitude from every nation, tribe and kindred and people will be saved. And God is waiting right now for a group right on this planet. You can be one of those that you're settled both intellectually and spiritually. Your understanding and your character is settled into God's methods of love. I want to read to you out of Six Testimonies, page 61. Our warfare is aggressive. Tremendous issues are before us, yea, and upright, right upon us. Let our prayers ascend to God 
that the four angels may still hold the four winds, that they may not blow or injure or destroy until the last warning has been given to the world. Then let us work in harmony with our prayers. Let nothing lessen the force of the truth for this time. The present truth is to be our burden. The third angel's message must do its work of separating from the churches a people who will take their stand on the platform of eternal truth. Pause. Separate from the churches. What do you think that means? Could it mean separating from institutional loyalties? Yes. And institutional methods. Do you understand that institutions do not run on the law of love? Institutions run on imposed law. Yes. 2,000 years ago, there was an institution that was set up by God himself, the nation of Israel and blessed with the, the, the prophetic writings and, and all the symbolic system and the sanctuary and the health message and the Sabbath day. They had all of it. But they ran on institutional methods, and thus they said it is better for one man to die than the institution. And what will happen is that people will make decisions to save and protect the institution at the cost of its members. And you have seen it, if you've been in any institutional church, you have seen individuals be expelled, hurt, injured, things covered up. Let's cover up the molestation that happened in our school because we don't want to ruin the name of the institution. You haven't seen this? Could it be that we are to separate our heart's loyalty? That doesn't mean we don't belong to an institution. That means we recognize institutions are there to serve us. We are not there to serve the institution. The institutions are helpful organizations for us to pool our resources, to organize together, to be able to create missions and ministries and hospitals and schools and other things we couldn't do. But they are, they are there to serve us. We are not there to serve the institution. We are there to serve Jesus Christ. Yes. So I'm not discounting the value of institutions. I'm simply saying one subtle issue is that our heart loyalty must be to Christ first, not to the institutions. Yes. And we can include governments in that institutional oh, umbrella. Oh, absolutely. And, yes. and, yeah. Political affiliations, governments. And football teams. Yes. a natural desire for man to want a king instead of God? You know, I guess I'd have to look at the assumption. Is there a natural desire that man wants a king instead of God? Well, if you look at the children of Israel, they wanted a king. Yes, but it was part of their maturity level. They were very immature, and they, were, they, they wanted to be like the nations around them. So they're focusing on the world around them, rather than focusing. So I, guess, I guess if you're focusing and you're uh, on level four and below operations, then you do want kings. You want some authority structure that you can, one, identify with and hopefully influence and control and manipulate. And currently we have institutions which you just kind of painted a picture and we, 90% of people find themselves in that situation where they put the institution above themselves. So it's, it seems to be a man thing. Yes, and, and this, is the, this is the challenge. This present truth is to, I think, separate from the churches. And that doesn't mean don't have membership somewhere. It means don't have your loyalty to the institution, have your loyalty to Jesus Christ. And then the last, I'm going to close with this. Uh, uh, Review and Herald, July 26, 1887. The very work that is essential for everyone who receives the present truth is to aim at perfection of character and thoroughness in winning souls to Christ. 
Be determined that you will advance and improve in your work, and then you will be continually progressing. For those who have received this this light feel that they must bring more of the Spirit of Christ into their own life and character as they advance. Notice that we just want to grow and grow and grow to be more like Christ. That is the present truth for this time because God is preparing a people that, according to Scripture, when he comes, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. And that legal, penal, model stuff obstructs the transformation because people are satisfied in a legal accounting with no expectation of transformation. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much that you are our creator God who has built not only space, time, energy, matter, but you constructed our bodies, our brains, our minds. You designed for us to live eternally in a love relationship in harmony with your nature and character of love. And we are born in a condition deviant from that design, but you have already procured the remedy that will heal and restore us, Jesus Christ. And we ask that your spirit will take all that he's achieved, reproduce it in us, It is no longer I that live, but you live in me. We pray in your holy name. Amen.